Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Howdy and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your Texan ghost, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode has a lotter, Frank Cannon lotter, and Hulark. That last part will make more sense once you listen to section seven. Hop into this wicker basket with me, and I'll intimately tell you all about some horror movies once it's closed and we're in the dark. Number one, Some Guy Who Kills People, 2011, directed by Jack Pettis. A guy named Ken spent 11 years in the loony bin after being tortured by a group of his peers. After his release, Ken's friend Irv caught him a job at an ice cream parlor. Irv is a very supportive friend to Ken. The people that tortured Ken start dying, and it looks like Ken is the culprit. Ken got a woman pregnant before going away. He meets Amy, his 11-year-old daughter, for the first time, and they start bonding. The mom left Ken before Amy was born. Ken starts seeing a woman named Stephanie. The sheriff realizes that all the guys that are being killed were on a basketball team together, and Ken was the mascot. Ken is taken in for questioning. Amy goes to see Irv and finds the ice cream owner tied up. The sheriff shows up and arrests Irv. Irv confesses to killing the guys since he felt bad about not helping Ken back in the day. Irv is the killer. Some guy who kills people starts off strong, then turns into a movie about a guy bonding with his daughter he's never met, which in and of itself is a fine concept, but the first third of the movie is a horror comedy slasher where you are pretty sure Ken is the killer. I thought some guy blatantly let us know it was Ken from Kill One. Maybe I wasn't paying enough attention. After Irv takes the fall for the kills, I actually went back and watched some of them to see if Irv was the killer or was just covering for Ken since Irv felt he was the true loser of the two. Irv being the killer wasn't a shocking reveal or anything. It was more of a, uh, huh, okay type moment for me. There's a lot of genuinely funny moments in Some Guy. The dialogue is witty. One of my favorite dialogue-based jokes in the movie is the falling back and forth between Ken and his mom. I made lasagna once. It was pretty good. Really? Don't make me lie twice. Not only is the dialogue humorous, the movie also has visual humor. There's a decapitated head on a table at one point, and the sheriff character says its eyes follow you. He then proceeds to move around while staring at the severed head. It's great. My favorite character in Some Guy is definitely the sheriff, played by Barry Bostwick. His comedic timing and line delivery are perfect. I've talked about him on the podcast before when I covered a Christmas horror movie called Sleigh Bells, in which he played Santa. He was the best part of that movie. In case you missed that episode and want to know a little more about Barry Bostwick, 
His most known character is definitely Brad Majors in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Kevin Corrigan plays Ken and is fine in the role. He pops up in a lot of things. He played a mysterious teacher on an episode of Community. Stephanie is played by Lucy Davis, who's been in Shaun of the Dead, and currently plays Aunt Hilda in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Amy is played by Ariel Gade, who doesn't come off as a convincing kid in the least. I think that was supposed to be the point, though. That said, this was her last role. She's still alive, which I'm assuming is due to her poor acting. The gore in Some Guy is solid. My favorite bits are definitely during the machete kill, where two comically large blood sprays are showcased. The sprays were done practically and looked perfect. I had never heard of this movie until it popped up on one of those random best horror movies of the 2000s lists. I had heard of every other movie on the list, so I thought to myself, what the heck, let's watch one of the most generic sounding movies of all time. Some Guy Who Kills People is not a title that did this movie any favors. It's likely that I had seen the title and not realized that it was an actual movie. I haven't seen any of the director, Jack Pettis' other films, which include Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus, 666 The Child, and Monster Island. Carmen Electra and Nick Carter play themselves in the latter. Adam West and Mary Elizabeth Winstead are also in it. Maybe someday I'll check out that schlock. Some Guy Who Kills People is an alright movie that would be a bit better if it leaned more heavily on the comedy instead of the drama. If the camp was turned up a few notches, i definitely recommend it, but as it stands, it's not worth seeking out. If you happen to find yourself in front of a screen that's showing Some Guy Who Kills People, you should get some decent enjoyment out of it. Number 2, Basket Case, 1982, directed by Frank Henenlotter. Siamese twins that have been separated, Dwayne and Belial, track down and start killing the doctors responsible for their separation. Dwayne keeps Belial in a basket because he has only arms and a head and doesn't like the light. Dwayne meets a girl named Sharon, which makes Belial jealous. Belial kills a man that tries to steal the brother's money. All the doctors are killed. Dwayne and Sharon are about to get it on when Belial shows himself and freaks out Sharon. Later that night, Belial shows up at Sharon's, gropes her in her sleep, and then kills her since he's unable to force himself on her. Dwayne captures Belial. They fight which leads them to both fall out a window to their deaths. Belial is the killer. The doctors left Belial for dead, so those kills are revenge kills. If Belial had only killed the doctors, I wouldn't have put him on the list. That's why Dwayne isn't on there. I didn't mention that there's a flashback where the dad is killed by a comical wagon death machine made up of a bunch of sharp objects and a giant spinning saw blade that rolls down a ramp and slices Papa right down the middle. It's implied both brothers had a hand in that kill, but the dad did try to have Belial murdered before he had done anything wrong. I love the death wagon bit. Dwayne only helped kill people who left Belial for dead. Belial murdered a man for petty theft and poor Sharon. You kind of feel bad for Belial until the groping incidents. Yes, plural. He gropes another woman in the hotel the brothers are staying at before assaulting and murdering Sharon. I did not need to see a sexually frustrated, laughable-looking, latex, head-and-arms monstrosity sexually assault ladies. It looks absurd and makes the viewer turn on Belial completely, which is probably why the sequences were added to the movie, but I personally would have preferred more straight-up murder instead. Here's how to fix the Sharon kill. Belial rips Sharon in half. Well, 
not in half. The ripping would be just below the breasts. Then we cut to Dwayne as he bursts into Sharon's apartment and sees a startled Belial holding hands with the top part of Sharon's corpse, which now resembles Belial. That would have been interesting and, if executed correctly, hilarious. Speaking of people being half to death, everything else in Basket Case is a lot of fun and totally weird. The performances from everyone in the movie are wacky and outlandish. When everyone is overacting, is anyone? Terry Susan Smith played Sharon, and her delivery is so strange that it's captivating. I mean, everyone's delivery is awkward and bizarre. All the performances are mesmerizing and surreal. Kevin Van Hentenrick played Dwayne, and calling his performance over the top and inhuman would be underselling it. I loved it? Great performances all around. The hotel manager looks like Mario Mario. To avoid any confusion, I'm specifically referring to Mario Mario from the Super Mario Brothers movie, not Mario from the video games. In the hotel, there are multiple parts in the movie where people are running up and down this one staircase. The camera is always in the same place during the stair scenes, and I really like the constant commotion on the stairs. That's a weird thing to call out, but if you watch Basket Case, I think you'll understand what I mean. The stair sequences really help make the hotel feel alive and populated. Basket Case was shot in 16mm, then converted to a different aspect ratio for some reason without the director's consent since Frank Henenlotter had no control over post-production. I'm not sure why they decided to change the aspect ratio to 4-3. How was Belial brought to life? In so many ways. During POV shots, Henenlotter would wear Belial gloves. There was a shoddy puppet that could barely move its mouth and arms. Stop motion was used for sequences like when Belial trashes the hotel room, which looks awful and amazing at the same time. Belial always looks like a cheap piece of crap. It's endearing. One of the many things that doesn't make sense in this bewildering flick is Sharon wanting to go out with Dwayne. Dwayne has some of the wildest hair I've ever seen. Let me try to help you picture it. Let's start with a classic rainbow clown wig. Dye it dark brown, add some shaggy looking extensions to it, hit it with a dab of conditioner, not too much. We don't want to lose those curls. For the pied de resistance, scorch it with a hairdryer on the highest setting for a good 10 minutes. Ah crap, it's a little too frizzy now. Ah well, our finished product looks like a Luxurious, humongous, brown clown lion mane disaster. Seriously, what's up with Dwayne's hair? It's practically a character on its own. A twist in which Dwayne's hair is the real killer wouldn't have surprised me. I just remembered that there's a part in the movie where Dwayne runs through the streets of New York as he's making his way downtown, hanging dong, clothes all off, and he's Sharon bound. Yeah, give it up for Kevin Van Hentenrick who went full floppy wiener for Basket Case. Would you be surprised if I told you the only other movies he's really had a big role in are other movies from Frank Henenlotter? The gore in Basket Case is silly, practical, and a delight. Blayo claws people's faces, and the scratch wounds look great. The last doctor to be murdered gets a slow clap-worthy face full of scalpels. The halving of another doctor and the dad is super fun. Sure, the gore is cheesy to the max, but that's perfect for Basket Case. 
The score is synthy and works. Basket case is a good time overall. It's a cheap piece of garbage buried at the bottom of a dumpster, but it's not only covered in filth and unrecognizable goop, it's also covered in heart. I mean all this in the best possible way. Check out Basket Case. Here starts my dive into Frank Henenlotter. I have already seen Frankenhooker, or all the movies on this episode would be written, at least partially, and directed by him. I remember enjoying Frankenhooker, if you were wondering. Number 3, Brain Damage, 1988, directed by Frank Henenlotter. A brain-eating leech tentacle named Aylmer escapes his captors and starts a symbiotic relationship with a guy named Brian. Aylmer injects an amazing brain drug into Brian, and Brian, unknowingly at first, helps Aylmer find human brains to eat. Once Brian realizes people are dying, he tries to go cold turkey. The withdrawals are too strong and Brian continues to help Aylmer eat brains in exchange for the drug. Brian warns his girlfriend Barbara to stay away from him, but she doesn't, which leads to a drugged out Brian helping Aylmer kill her. Aylmer's original captors show up and are killed by Aylmer. Aylmer starts giving Brian a dose of the drug when one of the captors, who turns out is still alive, squeezes Aylmer, which forces a gigantic dose of the drug into Brian's brain and kills Aylmer. The captor succumbs to his wounds and dies. Brian's head starts bulging. Brian attempts to kill himself, but instead of dying after shooting himself in the head, Brian survives with a glowing hole in the top of his head. Aylmer and Brian are the killers. Brian ends up consciously helping Aylmer kill. Brain damage is amazing. I'm starting to think Henenlotter is a comedic genius. Aylmer is one of the most ridiculous horror antagonists I've ever seen. I implore all of you listeners to at least Google a picture of Aylmer from Brain Damage. That's A-Y-L-M-E-R. Aylmer looks like a Looney Tunes reject. I love his dumb little eyes. His voice is perfect. John Zacherly did the voice, and his delivery is perfect and cartoony. He was a famous horror host back in the day. Like Basket Case, Brain Damage is an overacted, comedic jumble of insanity. Rick Hurst plays Brian, and his acting works given the character he's playing is constantly high out of his mind. I mean, he's completely hamming it up at times, but he owns it. Throughout the entire movie, his character has a split lip, which was allegedly added because Henenlotter thought he looked too pretty. You rarely see those kind of imperfections on leads. I'm a fan of that kind of thing. There's a part in Brain Damage that gave me a good laugh. Barbara and Brian's brother check on Brian, who's been in the bathroom for hours, to find him giggling in a bubble-filled bathtub as he splashes around with his best bud, Aylmer. It's so bizarre and silly that I had to laugh out loud. Aylmer is an amazing puppet. The effects for him are leagues better than Belial's in Basket Case. Aylmer is able to wriggle around, move his mouth, look around with his beady little eyes, and open his mouth wide to reveal a plethora of sharp, wiggling teeth. I was impressed by almost all of the shots of Aylmer. Sure, there are a few stop-motion parts that look like crap, and some instances where you can tell someone is just pulling a string with a tentacle on the end to make it look like he's moving, but the practical effects work for Aylmer is amazing and delightful. The gore in brain damage is fantastic. Since Aylmer eats brains, you know there's going to be goopy brain gore. 
I never got tired of watching actors wildly flail around while Elmer burrowed into their heads and chomped on their brains. During most of the kills, blood sprayed all over the place. Most notable blood spurting everywhere kill is definitely the bathroom stall kill, where there's a humorous shot of blood spurting out the top of the stall. The most absurd kill has to be the Elmer Beach. Some random girl in the club wants to bang Brian, who's completely drugged out of his mind for some reason or another. At first, I thought she was trying to rob him or something. Girls having terrible tastes in men is a recurring theme in Henenlotter's movies. Other things that have popped up in the two movies I've seen so far are naked dudes, brothers getting intimate with their brother's girls, obnoxious yelling, New York City, bad stop motion, and cheesy puppets. Back to the BJ. The punk girl attempts to go down on a completely out of it Brian, only to get a mouthful of Aylmer, who eats her brain from the inside of her mouth. It's absolutely absurd. My favorite gore of the entire movie is a hallucination Brian has, where he pulls a bunch of brain matter from his ear before said ear falls right off and blood starts straight up gushing, and I mean gushing, out of the hole in the side of his head like the Hoover Dam exploded. It's amazingly well done and practical. Sure, I could tell the ear was fake, but I love the entire sequence. Another thing I really enjoyed in the movie is when Brian's spaghetti and meatballs starts turning into spaghetti and brains. The pulsating brain meatballs look great. Elmer's brain goop hallucinogen super drug? Not even once. It'll make you trip out and fantasize about banging your girlfriend while eating her brains. Brain Damage is a surreal horror comedy masterpiece. Elmer is now one of my favorite horror monsters of all time. Check out the very campy zany Brain Damage. I'm not sure why the guy on the movie posters doesn't look anything like Rick Hurst. Oh, Dwayne and Belial show up in the movie on the subway. You don't see Belial, but I know his gross ass was in that basket. Number 4, Basket Case 2, 1990, directed by Frank Henenlotter. Dwayne and Belial survived falling out of the hotel window. A doctor named Ruth, who specializes in helping strange individuals, and her granddaughter Susan help Dwayne and Belial escape a hospital. Dr. Ruth takes the brothers to her house, where a bunch of other people that would be considered freaks by the general population live. Dr. Ruth takes Belial to a freak show made up of fake freaks that an old man runs. Belial kills the man. A journalist tries to find Dwayne and Belial and figures out they're staying with Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth and the occupants of her house can't be exposed, so the freaks band together to take out the snoops. Belial kills the journalist, a cameraman, and a police commissioner. Belial is finally happy and even has a girlfriend just like him. Dwayne likes Susan until he finds out she has a weird monster baby inside her. This reveal causes Dwayne to accidentally push Susan out a window, killing her. Since Dwayne isn't happy, he believes Belial and himself need to be reattached. Dwayne sews Belial back onto his side. Belial and Dwayne are the killers. The other freaks don't technically kill anyone. Belial does all the dirty work. Basket Case 2 doesn't exude the same charm of its predecessor. Turns out a sequel a decade later isn't the play. Kevin Van Hentenrick is back as Dwayne. His character isn't the main focus this time around. We see a lot more Belial, and the effects used for him look better, albeit still incredibly cheap. A couple Belial parts in Part 2 actually have a real person as Belial's face. 
It's weird. I'm assuming it was Kevin Van Hentenrick, but I couldn't find proof. A lot of time is spent with Dr. Ruth and the other freaks. As for the new freaks, some look pretty interesting and decently done, while on the other hand, some are uninspired and shoddily thrown together. The one freak with the ginormous head is neat to look at for the minute he's on screen. The worm monster that pops out of Susan's abdomen was solid. Another standout for me is the freak with the huge messed up teeth that should definitely have been used to slice someone in half, but alas, Big Tooth Boy doesn't end up eviscerating even one person with his lethal weapon chompers. That's the problem with Basket Case 2. Sure, more freakish looking monster people are fun to look at, but what's the point of having all these new characters if Belial dispatches all the victims himself in boring fashion? The kills are nowhere near as entertaining as they were in the first movie, and frankly, the kills in the first movie aren't even that special. There's a whole sequence where an old man who's supposed to be funny and weird but just comes off as cringy and annoying pretends to have Belial's body. Dr. Roos shows up to the man's freak show with actual Belial so Belial can kill the old man. The old man is killed off screen and his body reveal isn't anything special. Why did you waste my time with this old freak show running man, Hennenlotter? No amount of him repeating the phrase 100 smackaroos and its derivatives is going to make me laugh. Am I supposed to believe that Dwayne instantly forgave Belial for all the horrible things he did to Sharon in the last movie? Sharon's never brought up and Dwayne doesn't seem all that upset with Belial. Good news for anyone that gets all hot and bothered when they gaze upon the definition of sex appeal that is Belial. There is a consensual Belial sex scene in Basket Case 2. It's between Belial and Eve, who is basically the female version of Belial. It's... It's something. Belial doesn't even have genitals. Maybe? Eve does? Who knows? For all I know, it's two hunks of flesh bumping stumps together. Hennenlotter Staples, Naked Dude, and New York are present in Basket Case 2. No, Dwayne doesn't also bang Eve, so we don't get the brothers' attempt to get intimate with their brother's GF staple in this. Dwayne's hair looks less stupid. The gore is pretty lame. I did like how the police commissioner and journalist's faces looked after they were ripped off by Belial. The blood spurting all over the room when Dwayne stitches Belial and himself back together was fun. If I had to sum up Basket Case 2 in one word, it would be... Boring. I found myself constantly checking out and looking at the time. Don't bother with this dull sequel. I'm still moving on to the third, which I'm hoping has at least some entertainment value. Maybe it'll have more of Belial getting his consensual freak on. Number 5. Bad Biology, 2008, directed by Frank Hennenlotter. A girl named Jennifer was born with at least seven clits. Jennifer also gives birth about two hours after doing the deed. The babies that come out aren't fully developed, so she leaves them to die. She has sex with randos, accidentally murders one, and intentionally kills another who she thought she shared a connection with. A guy named Bats was born with a large penis, which gained sentience after he used certain drugs in order to make it possible for him to maintain an erection. Jennifer finds out about Bats's giant member and believes it's fate that they get together. The dick detaches itself from Bats' body and goes around town banging ladies. When it comes back home, Jennifer bangs it. The dick dies and so does Jennifer after she gives birth to a giant dick with limbs baby. Jennifer is the killer. 
Bad Biology, you told us you were going to watch Basket Case 3. I did say that, listeners. Then I started watching it, realized it was more of the same Dr. Ruth Freakhouse garbage, so I bailed. Sue me. Besides, I remembered the last Hulu Into the Dark movie of the year just came out. I didn't want to put that definite masterpiece off until October, so Basket Case 3 was skipped. I can guarantee I would have hated it. Bad Biology is less of a horror comedy and more of a weird porno. I'd say its gore to nudity ratio is 1 to 10? How's the almost non-existent gore? Fine. Meh. Whatever. Since there's barely any gore in this movie, you'd hope that the gore that's included would be insane and over the top. It's not. Jennifer bashes the back of a bad boy Rando's head on the floor during a bang sesh. The gore for this could have been absurd, but all that's shown is a tiny pool of blood. You don't even see a wound. The other gore scene that comes to mind is the one where Jennifer bludgeons a dude to death with a bedside lamp. Blood splatters all over from her constant bashing. She goes to town with that lamp. The lamp kill is funny and well done, but unfortunately that's pretty much the only instance of comedic gore in the movie. There are some objectively humorous moments like Bats' dong flapping around inside his boxers, which is accompanied by some gross, goofy skin slapping against skin sound effects, and when Jennifer gives the sizable Willie mouth-to-mouth resuscitation after it exhausts itself during Ding Dong's night out. A lot of Hennenlotter staples are present. You get naked dudes, terrible stop motion for one of the all-on-his-own wiener shots, obnoxious yelling, and awful to the point of being mesmerizing acting. At one point, Bats injects his third leg with the blue substance, which I'm assuming was a nod to the drug in brain damage. Bats hooks up with a hooker for a very brief encounter, which leaves her in a state of never-ending orgasm. If nothing else, Bad Biology is one of the wackiest movies I've ever seen. It's plain absurd, it is. Jennifer and Bats both talk directly to the audience. The movie was produced and co-written by some rapper I've never heard of named R.A. The Rugged Man. That explains why the score and soundtrack is hip-hop heavy. Charlie Danielson, who played Jennifer, was dating Mr. Rapper at the time, which is the main reason she was cast as one of the leads. Watching a large fake sentient dingaling penetrate its way into houses through walls and floors is something. It's kind of entertaining, but gets old fast when it's shown over and over. I foolishly expected a lot more horror from this horror comedy. Well, I didn't even really expect anything all that spooky or anything, but I did assume there would at least be a decent amount of comedic gore, which was practically absent in Bad Biology. Bad Biology is a unique movie. I've never seen anything even remotely like it. It's cheaply thrown together, overly absurd, and a perfect representation of what happens when Hen and Lauder goes full force. It's up to you to decide if bad biology is good or bad. I can't make the call for you on this one. I will say this, I'm never going to watch it again. If you decide to give this movie a chance, I implore you to watch all of Hennenlotter's other movies first. I say all, but you can pretend that Basket Case doesn't have a two or three. If you enjoy the other movies, give bad biology a go. Otherwise, stay far away. 
Abandon preconceived notions regarding what a film should be. All ye who enter here. It's not a good movie. It's an interesting movie. Number 6, Pure, 2019, directed by Hannah McPherson. A girl named Shay's mom dies, so she's taken in by her dad she hadn't met before. The dad has another family. Shay is the result of the dad cheating on his wife when she was pregnant. The dad takes Shay and his other daughter, Joe, to a purity ball. Shay, Joe, and some other girls perform a ritual and summon Lilith. The dads are creepy. Shay reveals she's not a virgin and is put in a cage. One girl, feeling immense guilt due to her horrible priest's father's upbringing, commits suicide since she no longer feels pure after kissing a boy. Shay lets Lilith take over her body. Lilith then kills all the creepy dads. All the girls then walk off together. Lilith is the killer. Why am I making Lilith the killer? The dads didn't technically kill anyone. They are definitely all guilty of being creepy freaks who don't deserve daughters, but they didn't deserve to die, at least not all of them. Some of the girls are probably really upset about their dads being murdered. Pure is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, not because of its reliance on some of the most heinous, out of nowhere, screamer-esque jump scares. What's horrifying about Pure is the fact that the whole purity ball thing is real. I couldn't believe that what's depicted in the movie is a real thing. The whole idea of dads taking their daughter to a ball to promise to protect their purity, aka virginity, is one of the most disturbing things I've ever learned about. Instead of making this trash movie, the director should have just made a documentary about these purity balls. They're disgusting and inherently creepy. A ball where a bunch of weird dads fetishize their virgin daughter's purity hits me hard with the heebie-jeebies. I'm going to focus on the movie now. Pure is a bad movie. Y'all expected that. Is it the worst Hulu Into the Dark movie? No, but it's close to the bottom. I touched on this a second ago, but the jump scares in Pure are so flagrant that I have to bring them up again. I counted three times in which a random clip of Lilith was cut into the movie in spots where no one is thinking about Lilith in any regard which were accompanied by a loud sound for no reason other than to startle the audience. I don't like jump scares, but I can understand why horror movies lean on them. I wouldn't even call these random, completely out of place, loud ass Lilith clips jump scares though. They are Lilith screamers. Screamers are the cheapest way to scare someone. If you've never seen an internet screamer, I'll try to explain one. Someone tells you to look at an image of a room and wait for something to change. You're focusing on that room, studying the furniture, waiting for something to happen. Out of nowhere, the image changes to a picture of Reagan from The Exorcist as a loud scream is played along with the reveal. Did Reagan have anything to do with that room? Nope. It's completely random. There were three completely random Lilith screamers in Pure. I don't even know why the movie is trying to make us afraid of Lilith. She's just a normal redhead. She's not scary. She's not even scary when they give her the old distorted smile from Truth or Dare. Remember that? I'm not sure why Lilith needed a goofy big smile. It's not scary or anything. It's just dumb. In Pure, they say Lilith cheated on Adam with an angel because she was too thirsty. My understanding is that Lilith left Adam, since he was a salty loser who wanted her to be his slave, 
After leaving his punk ass, Lilith got with an angel. Who wouldn't pick an angel over Adam? If the weird religious loser dads in Pure think Lilith is so bad, why do they have multiple stained glass windows depicting her and no windows depicting Eve? Almost all of the songs in Pure are ill-fitting. The acting is fine for what this is. Gore is pretty much non-existent except for some bloody faces the dads have after Shay Lilith makes them bash their faces on the ground. That was kind of fun. Pure is a bad movie that should have been a great documentary. Do not waste your time. Number 7. Hulu Into the Dark, A Retrospective If you aren't an avid listener of this podcast and Hulu Into the Dark connoisseur like myself, you're probably going to be very confused about what I'm talking about. Hulu Into the Dark was a series of horror movies released once a month on Hulu for an entire year. Each film focused on a different monthly holiday. 12 movies. 12 movies ranging from meh to old chunky barf left out in the sun next to a dumpster in some alley no one has walked down in weeks. I thought I'd start off this walk down memory lane and discussion of the Into the Dark series as a whole by listing them from best to worst. Here's the order. Flesh and Blood. I'm just effing with you. All that we destroy. Puka. School Spirit. They Come Knocking. Down. Culture Shock. Pure. The Body. Treehouse. And... New Year, New You. That's it, folks. A big congratulations to New Year, New You for taking the worst Hulu Into the Dark movie of the year. I'm now going to refer to the series as Hulark for brevity's sake. I wish I had thought of that sooner. It was a close race. There were so many garbage movies, but New Year, New You is the cream of the crap. Flesh and Blood ended up being the best, and that movie wasn't anything special. I could definitely be persuaded to change the order of the top three movies. Quality and plot cohesion were big factors in the order, but the most important thing to me was entertainment value. I also put They Come Knocking a lot higher than it probably should be due to how great the first part of the movie is. One thing that has blown my mind throughout this Hulark year is how polarizing some of the movies are. For example, I just finished watching the last movie, Pure. It's awful. I looked for some reactions online and found a thread that was completely positive towards the movie. What? How did you love this trash? I'm all for differing opinions and can normally see why someone would like something even if I don't, but the lower movies on that Hulark list are objectively crap. If you think I'm wrong about any of the Hulark movies I said weren't worth checking out on the podcast, I implore you to email me at blankisthekiller at gmail.com and explain to me what makes them decent. I'm completely open to discussing these movies and would be interested in having my opinions challenged. Hulark has been renewed for another year and I'm definitely going to keep up with the Hulark offerings. Even when the movies are painfully terrible, they're fun to trash talk. Who knows? Maybe there will be an amazing Hulark movie that's so damn good that it makes the ripe list next year. Pumpkin Harvest 2019 spoilers, a lot of Hulark movies made the rotten list. Even though I found a majority of Hulark movies to be figurative ass, I'm still glad that Hulark is continuing. I like that more and more small directors are getting the chance to make horror features. 
Sure, a majority of the people this year did a bad job, but that doesn't take away from the positive aspect of Hulark helping these smaller filmmakers. Hulark, are you listening to the podcast? Hulark, give myself and Sticker Fridge a budget to make a horror movie. I guarantee it will be more fun than anything that came out during your first year. No promises on an entire feature being buttery smooth when it comes to the technical aspects, but I promise it'll be a fun time. That's my biggest gripe with year one of Hulark. There is an insane lack of fun in these horror movies. The only movies that ended up being incredibly fun, either on purpose or accident, were I'm Just Effing With You and Puka. Not all of the Hulark movies have to be goofy horror comedies, but I'm really hoping that season two has more comedy and fun. I guess The Body was trying to be funny, but that movie put me to sleep. In closing, year one Hulark bad. Me hope you're too good. Me want money to make Hulark movie. Me can be reached at blankisthekiller at gmail.com about movie. Hot dog, that's the end of blank is the killer 54. A lotter, Frank Hennenlotter, and Hulark. I told y'all I wouldn't delay this episode. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. If you dug it, rate it on iTunes, email me, you know the drill. I'm going to get freaky in the next episode. It'll be real off the cuff. I'm going to blab and ramble on about Fantastic Fest, which I'll be in the middle of when this current episode uploads. There are going to be so many movies at the festival that I'm already filled with anxiety about trying to catch all the ones I'm interested in, which are most of them. Whoa, dude. So many motion pictures. There's going to be a large amount of sitting in theaters, staring at screens. Oh wait, I'm already there since this episode is releasing in the future. Oh wow, movies I've seen here have been good. It's fun here in Fantastic Fest. The big ol' recap will be released as episode 55 on October 6th. Oh crap, I'm, I'm getting thrown out of the screening for recording my podcast in the theater. Gotta go.